Last Sunday, we began our study in this letter from Jude. He's the brother of James, and he is the half-brother of Jesus, and he was a, a leader in the early church. It opens, we'll read the first two verses together, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so he opens the letter by telling us who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians. Um, Christians are called, they are loved by God, and they are kept by Jesus Christ. And so that is who we are in Christ. Each one of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus. This is who we are. And what we have, among other things from that relationship we have with God, that restored relationship we have, is mercy, peace, and love. And so Jude is saying, my desire is that these wonderful benefits be multiplied to you. Not that you just have them, but that you'll have them abundantly. Multiplied. Mercy, peace, and love. Now Jude set out to write a letter about our common salvation, something we all have in common. There are many things that make us different from each other, but this is the one thing that we all share. That's why we're all here together, uh, is our salvation. That God has rescued us from the flames. And so he intended to write to us about that, but instead he felt compelled to sound the warning. There in verse 3, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about our salvation, the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. That statement right there is the capstone of this letter. That is the purpose of this letter, to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. Everything that he's going to say after that falls under that umbrella. The purpose of this letter is to encourage us to protect the faith. And uh, that's why the letter has been written. We see here he calls these Christians, his friends, dear friends. And uh, what that word actually means is the beloved. Um, I think it's J. Vernon McGee at the end of every sermon. He would say, may God richly bless you, my beloved. That's how he would always end his sermons. Uh, so this is who we are. And this is a very strong contrast from those he is warning us about. That's what the letter is about. Contend for the faith because there's trouble. There's trouble afoot. And so when he talks about them, he doesn't talk about them in the same way. They are certain men, certain men who are ungodly, who have crept in to the Christian community. They have crept in unnoticed. Now how do you, how do you creep in unnoticed? This means that they are not what they say they are. They are different from what they present themselves as. And uh, Paul, he, he had the same problem in Galatians 2 verse 4. He said, Paul warned the Galatians to watch out for false brothers. So these are people who present themselves as believers. And on the outside, that's what it looks like. From what they're saying, that's what it looks like. But they're not. As a matter of fact, if you drop down to verse 9 in Jude, we find out that they are not even Christians. 
That's not the right verse, is it? Um, let's see. Verse 19. I could nine of my, my notes. These people, verse 19, create divisions and are merely natural. They are the natural man. Remember, Paul talked about the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man does not have the Spirit of God. And so these are people who are not regenerated. There's a big difference between somebody who gets saved and they fall away, they start messing up, they fall out of fellowship with their family, fall out of fellowship with the church. They're out there doing stupid things that are very self-destructive. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about people who are coming into the church unnoticed, who are not really believers. And so this is what James is warning us about. Uh, it says that uh, there again, back to go back where we were at there in verse 4, for certain men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are certain men, and this, uh, what it means there when it says who were designated for this judgment long ago, means that long ago God predetermined what the judgment was going to be for those who are apostate. People who claim to be, but they are not. And Paul or Jude tells us here two different things that they're doing. Number one, at the end in verse four there, it tells us that they are turning the grace of God into license. So they are enjoying the grace of God and they feel like they have liberty in Christ now and they are taking that to the extreme to where they are actually sinning. So they've turned God's grace into an excuse or permission to sin. And then secondly, they deny the Lordship of Christ. So they say they believe in Jesus, but He's not their Lord. They will not submit themselves to His authority. The Lordship of Christ. So Jesus is not their boss, and they're basically doing whatever they want. That's these fellows. Well, uh, what happens next is in the next three verses, and, and we only hope to go through verses 5, 6, and 7 this morning. It's not my ambition to spend... 75 years in this letter, uh, but uh, we're going to have to spend some time as we go through these three verses. I don't see any other way around it. Um, but when we come to verse 5, what Jude begins to do is he gives us three examples of what these people are doing from the Old Testament. He also draws from Jewish literature. And so uh, you see here how he starts off verse 5. He says, now I want to remind you Though you already know these things. And so this is a very a big indicator. Uh, this statement right here. And then the body of this letter. Because everything Jude is saying. He is supporting and using Old Testament examples. To support what he's teaching. And so uh, he also draws from Jewish literature. There's a big difference between the Bible and Jewish literature. Right? Uh, we The... the chicken soup for the soul and purpose-driven life and all left behind and all these Christian fiction books, uh, even a commentary on the Bible. That's not the Bible. So literature that was common to a certain group of people. And so this lets us know that the primary audience that this letter is written to are Christian Jews. 
Jewish, Jewish believers who are very much familiar with the Old Testament and very much familiar with that common body of literature that the Jewish people was reading and sharing that was so prominent among them. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, they had literature that they would read, just like we do. And it was collected, and they, they, they um, all shared it and read it, especially in that interim 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a, a lot of literature written in those 400 years. They never, and never for even one moment, thought that any of it was Scripture. But it was sacred. It was, it was um, important to them. It was kind of like um, how you might have a book that's really resonating with you that you have in your, in your library, something that you've read that really helps you with your walk, and it's a very important book for you. This is the kind of stuff this was. And so when Jude begins to draw illustrations from the Old Testament and from that kind of literature, literature that the Greeks were not reading, people in Asia were not reading it, the Romans weren't reading it, it was the Jewish people. So this lets us know that this letter was written primarily, initially, to Christian Jews. And so he's going to begin uh, by talking about three different things. Uh, he's going to talk about the wilderness wanderings of the, of the Israelites and what happened to them. He's going to talk about angels who did something really bad and got thrown in prison. And then he's going to talk about the people that lived in that Sodom and Gomorrah's valley, that valley of those two major city-states and the surrounding cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to talk about those citizens. And so he uses those three things to explain what these kind of people are that have worked their way into the church. I'll let you know a little bit that we're going to get into the weeds a little bit today. Like I said, I don't see how we can avoid it. But um, first, we'll read verse 5, the first example. I want to remind you, though you know all these things, the Lord, having first of all saved a people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so if you're in Athens and you've never heard about the God of Israel, that's not going to mean a lot to you, is it? Uh, it probably means a lot to us because we've been studying the Bible in this church, and, and before you came here, you studied the Bible other places. And so we're familiar with the story of what happened to the nation of Israel. They, uh, they found themselves uh, as captives in Egypt. They were forced into slavery. And they were forced into slavery for a long time, hundreds of years. And finally, God raised up Moses. And Moses led the people out. And they were leaving Egypt to go to Israel or the promised land. Or the people that lived in that land at the time were from Canaanites, so it's the land of Canaan, the promised land, Canaan, uh, Israel, it's all the same location. So they were leaving Egypt to go there. Well, right in the middle is this horrible desert, you know, uh, not a lot of water, not a lot of food, and a long, hot, hot journey. And so Moses led them out of that. And when they got all the way, and it was probably pretty exciting, you can imagine if you were, uh, you know, a prisoner of war and the U.S. military came in and rescued you. You finally got free. Probably pretty exciting. But as they worked their way through that wilderness, they started to complain. This is hot. I'm not comfortable. I don't like this. At least in Egypt we had this. At least in Egypt we had that. And people started to look behind them for where they had came from. 
and they got all the way up to the promised land. It's time to go in. And so they sent 12 spies in. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about this. They sent in one man from each tribe to go into the land of Canaan, scout it out, and they all came back. And when they all came back, 10 of them said, there's no way we can do this. We don't have the military. These are fortified city-states. We saw giants. There's literally no way we can do this. And everybody agreed with them. There were two people, Jacob or Caleb and Joshua, who said, no, the Lord will be with us. We can do it. But they were in the minority and they were overruled. And because that happened, because the people did not trust God, and this was a point we made Wednesday night, was that when God has proven himself to us, he expects us to trust him. And after all of the things he did, those ten plagues in Egypt and, and uh, all of the miraculous ways, he parted the Red Sea, he got them through, wiped out Egypt's army, he sustained them all the way through the wilderness, God had proven himself to them. And when they did not trust him, there was a consequence to that. And what happened is, is he pronounced judgment on those people and he said, this generation is not going to go in. You don't have the guts? You don't trust me? Fine. This is where you'll stay. You're going to spend the rest of your life here in the wilderness. And it fell upon their shoulders to teach their children to trust God and to not do what they did. And so when those people came of age, when that generation had died out, and those people came of age, Joshua and Caleb led the people in. So what it's talking about here in Jude, verse 5, is how God did pronounce a judgment on those people because of their unbelief. They lacked, they did not trust Him. And uh, I've got some mathematics here that uh, is exciting for those of you who are like love math. Um, I, I love math. Um, so I'm joking. So... Um, what it says in Numbers chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, is, is that uh, what God pronounced on them is He said that every man 20 years of age and older will perish in the wilderness. And in Numbers chapter 1, it numbers them 603,550. That is the number of men who were eligible to be enlisted into the army. So that would be 20 years old and older that were still physically capable of serving in the military. So this probably does not include the elderly men. And if we just assume that there is one woman per man, if we just assume that, then the figure reaches all the way up into 1.2 million people. And so for the, for the next 38 years, these people began to die. And if you do the math, 1.2 million people over 38 years, it's almost 87 people dying a day in that wilderness. Very graphic, very graphic judgment. Loud and clear. And so this is a very good example for all of us that um, we can trust God in the beginning and be going really well and then fall away only to suffer the consequences. Our salvation might be intact but that does not mean that there will not be consequences for, for our slipping away and doing things our own way, turning our back on God, going back to Egypt. You know, Very graphic illustration. So this is the very first illustration that Jude gives us. The second one is in verse 6. And he has kept with eternal chains and darkness 
for the judgment of the great day. Angels who did not keep their own position, but deserted their proper dwelling. Hmm. So we've got some angels that did something wrong, didn't we? Don't we? There's some angels who did something wrong, and they are in chains in darkness awaiting the great day of judgment. And it says here the reason is because they deserted their own position and their proper dwelling. They didn't keep their own position and they deserted their proper dwelling. Hmm. Well, remember in the introduction we talked about how Second Peter and Jude are like two sides of a coin. Second uh, Peter looks like it's written first, Jude second. Peter talks about these characters who are coming and Jude says they're already here. You see, so you can see the timeline there. And there's so many similarities between Jude and 2 Peter, and so I would encourage you just to keep your finger there and just go to the left a little bit until you get to 2 Peter, chapter 2, because Peter also talks about these angels. Now, there is an assumption that we're making is that 2 Peter and Jude are talking about the same things, but I think it's a safe conclusion simply because of the parallels. The parallels are outstanding. Uh, if you've ever read through Second Peter, you would know what I'm talking about. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus, and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment, you see. So he's going to talk about uh, the angels, the flood. Uh, we'll just read through it. Look, so... And verse 5, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral. You see, and so what he's saying here is he's talking about how... Uh, God, these fellows, their doom is certain. And he's saying, if God did not hold back on punishing the angels, but he did, he did save Lot, Noah, and if he did not hold back on destroying those in Sodom and Gomorrah, he did restore and save Lot. You see, that's the picture that Peter's making here. So if we look at what uh, Peter is talking about here in verse 4, he's talking about these angels... But he doesn't tell us what they did. He just says that they sinned. See there it says, For if the God didn't spare the angels who sinned, and he threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. So based upon that verse and what we see in Jude, what is it that we actually do know? From reading this, what do we know? Peter says they sinned. Jude says they sinned, but Jude explains the sin. He said they, they did not keep their own position, but deserted their proper dwelling. What's that all about? What does that mean? It means that what God told the angels to do, what their assignment was, what their position, what their natural order was, they rebelled against that and left it. Okay? When that happened, I don't know. So that's one thing. We also see in verses 4 of 2 Peter and in verse uh, five, 6 of um, Jude that these angels have been put in prison for this. 
Well, how long are they going to be kept in prison? Does it say? In verse 4, it says they're going to be kept in judgment until judgment. So that means they're going to get let out before judgment? Nope, they're going to be kept until judgment. Verse 6 of Jude. Well, with eternal chains and darkness for the judgment of the great day, you see. And so it gives us every impression that these angels are locked up right now, and they're going to continue to be locked up until the judgment. What is that judgment? The Bible talks about the lake of fire and Satan and the angels that followed him. Death and Hades are going to be emptied and cast into the lake of fire. And so this is what we're talking about. These guys messed up so bad that God's locked them up and that's what's awaiting them. What else do we see here about this? And he is kept with eternal chains and darkness for the judgment of the great day, angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. There's an elephant in the room here. Jude expects and Peter expects his audience to know what he's talking about. Doesn't he? What's the purpose of making an illustration of something if you don't even know what he's talking about? Is it, Yeah, it does. It does illustrate that. Uh, I'm just asking us to think about this particular passage. It's telling us that some angels sinned by le leaving their their position, and that they've been put in prison until judgment, and that the audience that Jude is writing to, the audience that Peter is writing to, he expects them to know what he's talking about. So, what is he talking about? When did this happen? If we're supposed to know, where would we go to find that? It would be in the Old Testament, wouldn't it? Well, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we are told that there was a massive rebellion of angels that was led by Lucifer. An untold number of angels rebelled against God and followed him and left. But we're not told that they were put in prison. As a matter of fact, we know they're not. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, what was, he what was he encountering? People possessed by demons, right? What were the apostles encountering? People possessed by demons. What are we told in the New Testament? That Satan is roaming the face of the earth like a roaring lion, seeking who whom he can devour. What is Paul talking about in Ephesians, where he's talking about putting on the full armor of God? You know, and that, there is, that there's an organized enemy that has rank, that is working against the things of God, working against God's people. So that rebellion did not result in them being put in prison. If it were, who would have been the first to go to jail? The leader, Lucifer. That would have been the first guy I'd have thrown in jail. God didn't do that. So whatever Jude is talking about, whatever Peter's talking about, is a subsequent sin, something that happened after that initial sin. So where are we talking about? What are we going to look at? What could he have possibly been doing? In God's full disclosure, now that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find out that uh, we find out that 
There are angels who are confined for things that we don't even know about. If you go to the book of Revelation in chapter 9, there is a, an angel who blows the fifth trumpet. And when he blows that fifth trumpet in, in Revelation 9 verse 3, it tells us that um, he has given a key to the abyss. And he opens the abyss and a horde of locusts, which basically are demons, come out. And their king is called Apollyon. And they, they attack everybody on the planet that do not have the mark of God on their forehead. In other words, unbelievers. Unbelievers are attacked for five months. And it's so bad that they wish they were dead. Well, who are these guys? Why were they locked up in the abyss? We don't know, but they are. If you keep reading in Revelation chapter 9, you get down to verse 14, you find out that there are four angels, demons, who are chained at the bottom of the Euphrates River. What did they do? I don't know. But when that sixth trumpet is blown, the angel who blows the trumpet is told to go and release them. And when he releases those four guys, I mean, we saw what, those, we, we saw what that horde of demons did when they got released from the abyss. Just destroyed folks for five months. So it gives us a pretty good indication of why God locked them up. Well, when you release these four guys from the Euphrates River, what does it tell us they do? They go and kill one-third of the world. One-third of the world's population dies. You see. And so that tells us that there are things happening in the angelic realm that we do not know about. People who think that they can go around, you know, they've got some handle on the angels and stuff. Uh, to me, that's like putting a blindfold on yourself and letting everybody turn you around and around and around and giving you a little stick and trying to hit the pinata. There's so much we don't know, right? But the Bible does give us little windows. And so maybe this is what Jude's talking about, but I don't know. Uh, the book of Revelation wasn't even written yet. So it could have been that. But what the Jews did know about, what Jewish Christians did know about, was Genesis chapter 6 and the apocryphal book of First Enoch. They did know about those two things. Now, um, I knew that gene, I knew that this was going to go long. I knew it. Um, so I'm going to try to speed this up for you, but um, it's really important for us to see these connections because what happens is, is people have in their minds that demons at one point came down, cohabitated with women. They had children that were the Nephilim, and uh, that's why God flooded the world. Well, guess why everybody thinks that? Because that's what the book of First Enoch says. Uh, Enoch uh, is, is, the book of Enoch is 108 chapters. It's a compilation of five different works all merged together in the century right before, uh, in, the, in the first century BC. And uh, it has different parts in it. And uh, the, the part we would be mostly interested in is the first part, which is chapters 1 through 36, where it tells us this. It tells us that these, that, uh, uh, how many angels was it? Um, I, can't, I can't remember the exact figure, but it, it numbers the angels that he calls watchers. And they lust after the women of Mount Hermon, of all places. And they come down on Mount Hermon and uh, cohabitate with these 
human women, and they have children, which are the Nephilim. And so God is now going to bust all those guys up. And because the human race is contaminated, he's going to flood the world. And so this is what the book of Enoch says. Well, it's really important to know that Enoch did not write the book. Enoch, of course, is all the way back in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And he is the one who is translated up without dying. He's one of the few people. Elijah did that. Jesus left the earth without dying. Well, I guess the resurrection. So, uh, but Enoch is very unusual in that respect. And uh, he did not write it because in the letter or in this book, he talks about, he references Isaiah. He references Daniel. Enoch was way before those Isaiah or Daniel, right? So he could have been referencing Isaiah and Daniel. He names Mount Sinai. So, um, and, and when you get to chapter 71, Enoch discovers who the Messiah is. It's him. So first Enoch tells us that Enoch is the Messiah. So it's obviously not scripture. Uh, the nation of Israel at no point thought that it was scripture. And uh, more to the point, neither did Jesus. You know, you remember how Jesus confirmed the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament canon. We had a Bible study on Wednesday night where we talked about the, the Old Testament canon, the New Testament canon. And uh, just some examples, Luke eleven fifty one, Jesus' book ends, the death, the murder of Abel, and the, bur the, the murder of Zechariah, of son of Berechiah. See, so the A to Z of the Old Testament, all of the murders in between. Uh, later in Luke um, chapter 24, at the end of the book, uh, verse 44, he talks about how uh, all that has been written in the law and the prophets and the writings will be fulfilled. And so Jesus uh, confirmed the Jewish canon. So Jesus confirmed that Enoch is not scripture. And so this is very important for us to remember uh, because tradition, uh, which is what we're talking about here, is not the Bible. We are not accountable for tradition. What was the big problem with Jesus? What did the Jews have such a big problem with him about? It's because what he was saying wasn't what the Pharisees and the rabbis and the scribes had been interpreting about the Old Testament. And so they, when they thought about what do we do on the Sabbath, instead of just looking at what the Scripture says about the Sabbath, they had that plus all of these rituals and things that the Jewish people had came up with. It's kind of like Roman Catholicism. If you think about it, uh, all of these things that they came up with about Mary, praying to the saints, prayers for the dead, purgatory, the infallibility of the Pope, all of these things are not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, they contradict the Bible. But if you were to talk to a Roman Catholic person, that tradition trumps the Bible. They would never leave the Catholic Church because that's the umbilical cord to God. That's their salvation. And so that tradition, well, when you look at, the, when you look at Jewish tradition, you look at Roman Catholic tradition, there's truth mixed with error. When you look at Enoch, there's some truths in there. And so when, when Jude draws from Enoch, he's drawing out what is true and discarding the rest. Just because something from first Enoch is referenced or even quoted does not authenticate the entire letter, the entire work. Does that make sense? Okay. And so this is what's happening with Jude. Let's, let's turn very quickly to uh, Genesis chapter 6. 
And we'll look at what the Bible actually says about these angels. Genesis chapter 6. This is what the Scriptures actually teach us. Regarding these angels. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. That's just a very general statement about all people. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they took as many as they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. This is what it tells us. Now, sons of God is talking about angels. And uh, all you have to do is go to Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job, if you're writing any of this down, Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Job 38, verse 7. You could go to Daniel 3, verse 25. And you will see that when this title is used in the Old Testament, it's addressing angels. So we are talking about angels here in, in the book of Genesis in chapter 6. We are. And it does look like they came down and cohabitated and took, took human wives for themselves. It does. Now, can angels have kids? I don't know. I have no idea. We know that when uh, Jesus talked about heaven, he said that angels in heaven are not married. Just like when we get to heaven, we're not going to be married. Well, your station does not determine your capability. Um, if you, you can be celibate, but still be capable of having children. So uh, just because he said you're not married in heaven doesn't mean this could not occur. Now, uh, the confusion is the Nephilim. Now, if we are to conclude that the Nephilim are the offspring, then we have some problems. First of all, and I'm telling you, this is something you guys have all heard, I know you have. Uh, if the Nephilim are the kids, then it tells us that they were there before the flood, and then they were there after the flood. So if God's big purpose of flooding the earth was to eradicate this corrupted humanity, he failed. God did not get the job done, did he? Because they were before and after. But I will give you this. In verse 5, the purpose of the flood is stated. The Bible does not tell us that God flooded the world to destroy the supernatural hybrid people. It doesn't tell us that at all. Instead, God said that when he looked, verse 5, he says, when the Lord looked and saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. That's why. That's why. When God looked at creation was corrupted, man was corrupted, man was wicked, and all of his thoughts and schemes was just evil continuously. That's why the flood came. Now, I could be wrong about this, but 
the reason I do not think this uh, is I believe that the, this should, is the way that verse should be understood. That is a parenthesis. And I believe this because the Nephilim existed before the flood and the Nephilim existed after. That means if it happened after the flood, either the angels did it again or that the recessive genes were on that ark. And that's why they were there later. And I don't believe that God would fail in an eradication of anything. I want to call your attention to uh, the, the context of the book of Genesis, the context of Exodus, the context of Leviticus, the context of Numbers, the context of Deuteronomy. After those 12 spies came back and they said, we can't get it done. 10 of them said, we can't get it done. And God said, okay, fine. You guys are going to stay here. All the way up to the time they entered the promised land, during those 38 years, Moses wrote the five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they became so treasured by the people. And they would read it and they would study it. Because we remember that one of the problems is when the, when the spies went in and they, they came back, they said, and I'm going to read it for you. I've got it on here. Uh, Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 to 33. This is what the spies came back and said. The land we pass through to explore is one, that, is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed like the same to them. You see, after the flood, and in the conquest of Canaan, you had the Anakims, and you had uh, another bunch of giants called the Rephims. Uh, Og of Bashan was a king, and he died. Um, uh, look at this. When, when Joshua attacked uh, Canaan, and I know you're thinking, gosh, Greg, are you about done here? Give me five minutes, okay? Um, think about what I'm saying here. In Joshua chapter 11, when they, when they, went, into the, when they went into the land of Canaan to, to conquer it, they were confronting the giants. At that time, Joshua 11, verses 21 through 22, at that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, Anab, all the hill country of Judah and Israel, Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. None of them were left in the land of the Israelites except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Those are three of the five Philistine cities. And so later we see David confronting one of them from a Philistine army, remember? Now, when Joshua killed them, when the people of Israel killed them, they were just men. They were big, but they're just men. They weren't half human, half angel, supernatural beings. As a matter of fact, how did David describe Goliath? He said, you uncircumcised Philistine. They were just men. And so what I'm going to say is that what probably happened is that these angels probably inhabited very powerful human men. Uh, rulers, because it says there in, in, that in, in, in chapter 6, it says that they 
of, of Genesis, it says that they uh, took, with, took for themselves whoever they wanted, took as they chose as wives for themselves. Well, you have to have a position of authority to be able to do that. And a, a dignitary, a leader, a king, a ruler can do that. And so I believe that they inhabited these men, they did have children, and it was a very gross sexual immoral sin that really made God mad, and he lowered the boom on them. That's probably uh, the best way to look at that. And so when we look at the letter of Jude, and we're back to Jude now, um, we have the first example of these, um, these false teachers, these certain ungodly men who have crept into the congregation who are taking the grace of God and trading it for license. That's what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. That's what Christians can do. You know, God has saved us, We've got everything going for us great. And then we begin to sin and we fall into sin patterns and we're doing things that we know are wrong. There are things in our life that we will not fix. We know it's wrong, but we're not going to fix it. That's taking the grace of God and turning it into license. That's the example. And then secondly, he's talking about how people just rebelled against the lordship of Christ. They claim to be his, son, his follower, but he's not their lord. God, they do not allow Jesus to call the shots in their life and they're going to do whatever they want. So Jude gives two examples of that. One is these angels. These angels left the natural order and they did something perverted by entering the human race and, and a perversion, a sexual immoral perversion. And then the verbiage moves right into his third example, which is what the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah did. Another sexual perversion. Verse 7 of Jude. In the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as what the angels did, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions just as they did. And serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Here's the results of this. Here's the results of not dealing with these fellows. Almost all of the major denominations that hold the Christian name have completely embraced the homosexual community. Today the language is about diversity and love paired against phobia and hate. So if you say that it's something that's wrong, that's phobia, that's bigotry, that's hate, you see. This has infected our country, it has infected our, it's, across, it's around the globe. Look at what Canada's saying about this. But this is something that has completely saturated our government, our school systems, while we're teaching our little children, and it's infecting churches. And churches are dropping like flies because they're not protecting, they're not contending for the faith that has been delivered to the saints once and for all. It's very serious. This is just one sin. It's just one problem out of many. But this is the one that Jude has given us an example about. And so uh, my time is up. I think that, uh, I hope that I haven't uh, completely confused everybody. I know this is a lot, but I primarily felt like we needed to do this today because as we move through the letter, Jude is going to continue to draw from secular sources. He's gonna to continue to draw from Jewish literature at the same time he's drawing from the Old Testament. And this is a very, uh, 
in my opinion, uh, hopefully a very healthy exercise this morning where we looked at what the Bible actually does say and what are the conclusions that we can make that are actually safe, you know, instead of uh, chasing a bunch of rabbits and believing things just because it's, it's easy. Let the Bible say what it says and not say any more. This is the only thing we're accountable. I am not accountable to Jewish tradition. I'm not held accountable to Roman Catholic tradition. I'm not held accountable to uh, this Jewish literature that they're talking about. But I am accountable for the Word of God. The ones, the things that he has committed to writing. So, let's pray.